and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. Hello Lilia and I'm so happy to meet you. Um, I've been reading uh, about your extensive academic and business career within the mental health and neurodivergence field and I wonder if you'd be so kind to um, just give us a quick introduction about yourself, you know your your full name and roughly where you live and a little bit um, a little bit about what you do in the realms of neurodivergency please. Right, well, my name is Dr. Lilia Bakiwa Whitcraft. Um, uh, I used to be Dr. Bakiwa for a long time after I got married to my husband, but uh, eventually it got to the point where uh, patients struggled so much to pronounce my Slavic surname that I just became Dr. Whitcraft for them, <laughs> for their sake. <laughs> I, live, <laughs> I live in Oxford, in Oxfordshire. So that's in southeast England, um, and yes, it is the Oxford University, uh, the little city. What I do in neurodivergency, I would describe myself as autism guide, I guess. You know, when I was first diagnosed, it uh, it was quite a journey for me uh, because I really struggled uh, through finding myself as an autistic person. When I was diagnosed, uh, yes, I kind of had an explanation for things, but at the same time, it, there wasn't somebody to talk to, there wasn't somebody to go through things and uh, say to me, yes, this is autism. This is something you're never going to change. You may improve it, you may cope with it, and this is what uh, you can do to cope with it, but it will never be different, no matter how much psychotherapy you're going to have and uh, what kind of things I could actually work on, you know, to improve myself. And this is with all my specialist knowledge. I mean, by that time I was a full member of Royal College of Psychiatrists and I struggled for about two years after the diagnosis, just reading and thinking and uh, uh, chatting online. It was really hard. So when I finally have got some model in my mind I thought I really need to get out there and to help others uh, to do the same because so many other intelligent adults are getting diagnosed with autism these days and they have no idea how to how to live their life after that what to do how to do things so this is what I'm 
helping them uh, with. And uh, also I'm beginning to enter the corporate training uh, field. Um, I'm currently working on finishing my online online slash offline course. It's a bit of a uh, social enterprise project, which I'm happy to talk about later. But yes, I'm autism trainer and autism guide. Thank you very much for that, Lilia. And um, it is incredible when we're late diagnosed. Um, you know, I was, I was diagnosed this March 2021, autistic in ADHD. And I had no idea because I thought I, I was mentally ill during my life. And, yes. um, and, and I, I absolutely felt as though I'd kind of had to rewrite my life story. But also, once I had some acceptance, same as you, I thought, I can't keep this to myself. I need to help other people. And I almost did it immediately. I, as a psychotherapist, I, you know, I changed my directories. I changed my website. I came out loud and proud and just said here I am you know and I want to help I can't believe it's only since March and so much has happened and 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 it's great what you're doing absolutely we're going to talk about that later on so thank you for that now um so you have a um, an autistic diagnosis do you have any other co-occurring conditions I have ADHD as well so common uh ADHD Yes, it's so common, isn't it, to have ADHD and autism. And um, it's quite a fight and a paradox, isn't it? We, we, we constantly, one, our autistic mind is telling us to be structured and to do things in a particular way, rigid, repetitive. And our ADHD mind is saying, no, don't do that. I want to be impulsive. <laughs> How do you find that? Uh, it is... <laughs> It has always been a bit of a challenge. Uh, for example, you know, in uh, my job as a medical trainee, we had to rotate through our posts uh, several months, several times a year, sometimes every three months, sometimes every six months. So the three, four months was just about the right time for me. When we were going for six months, I was getting bored because I learned everything I could learn at that level of training, you know. I at certain level of training you're only allowed to do so much so I have done it I have learned it and I wanted to move on because I was getting bored but at the same time I was dreading the changeover because it it meant new people it meant new faces and uh, remembering their names and it usually takes me about two months just to settle in the new uh, environment just remember everyone's names and warm up to them uh, and that that did affect some things, you know, in uh, one of the jobs, I actually uh, received a direct feedback that nurses found me a bit funny the first few weeks, apparently. Uh, <laughs> a bit funny, I like that, a bit funny. Yeah, but then they discovered I was all right. <laughs> oh, well, thank God for that. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, I do definitely get the, um, the boredom side. You know, it takes, um, on the autism side, it can take such a long time to get to do something but then when we do it um with the autism and the adhd we become so hyper focused but then when we've learnt what we've need to learn we get bored and the boredom is kryptonite it's boredom is crippling sometimes uh, you know yes. certainly for me i hate being bored and i get angry and i want to drop it and run, run for the hills really I understand what you say about that, but when I when I look at all the things that you've done, you know, um, I can see that perhaps you know you start you, you do something you've worked 
all the way through to the best of your ability. You may have written reports and thesis and done all sorts of things. And then you've done another one because you've got, is it um, microbiology or uh, you have a chemist degree as well, is that right? I I was an MSc in, I, I got a master's degree, yes, it's a three-year research degree in Cambridge. And was that epitomo epitomology? I can't pronounce it. That was epidemiology and so it was a complex kind of project. It was based in clinical practice, but uh, I was looking at a population of people and un was analyzing their genomes uh, and uh, the expression of those particular genes and seeing if there is a correlation between the clinical symptoms and um, particular genes expressions. And that, I mean, this is a conversation for another day that I didn't include <laughs> questions because um, you just brought something up really interesting about the Spectrum 10 um, project at Cambridge University, which, um, you know, that quite a lot of the autistic community are, are worried about the eugenics and the sort of, you know, you know, looking at the genes and things like that. Have you, have you, what do you, very briefly, because, um, but I would like your opinion, what, what do you think about the Spectrum 10 project with Simon Baron-Cohen? I think it is entirely understandable to have these worries, especially after the recent revelations of uh, the quite revered figure, you know, previously revered figure in autism history, uh, Hans Asperger. Uh, so this, this worries and fears about the eugenics are completely understandable, but I don't, I think they are probably not justified. And uh, it is on pause at the moment. And the, I think my worry and some of my peers who have been on the podcast and spoken about it is um, the possibility that they're going to go away and um, use a different language, but bring it back as exactly the same thing. Um, and we just don't want that to happen. Research is great, but we've had since 1930 to research autis autism. So, uh, you but know, we, we never had uh, such opportunity to research the genes. I mean, you know, the sequencing of genomes has never been able so cheap and so fast. Uh, even compared to the time that I was uh, working on my thesis, I spent several weeks sequencing like uh, three gene uh, variations of the same gene and now you can sequence the whole genome in uh, less than a day if not an hour. <laughs> so That's incredible I, and, and, and uh, I, think, yeah. I, th I think you have to take advantage of that and I think it's possible that um, let's let's face it not everybody celebrates autism because the autism is a huge spectrum and some people are hugely disabled by it. And I think those people would probably benefit from the potential outcome of such research. Would I want to be cured from autism though? Because that would mean I would be a completely different person and uh, I wouldn't have achieved anything of what I would have achieved. I wouldn't have been as loyal, as persistent, as honest, as, uh, you know, I wouldn't have had my moral values probably if I hadn't been uh, on the spectrum and wouldn't have been able to blow the whistle, which might have been good for my career maybe. But uh, for others, for others who have severe ep epilepsy or who are unable to communicate uh, 
using any means, verbal, non-verbal, uh, no means at all. I think for them, it uh, could hugely change their quality of life uh, towards the better. It could do. I, I, um, I mean, I agree with you. I, I couldn't have written the book that I wrote um, before without being autistic ADHD because I wasn't academic because I had audio, uh, processing um, issues. But then I suppose I might not even be on the planet. That's the, that's the problem I have about the eugenic side. You know, it's the idea that you're giving somebody a decision to terminate a baby if they're showing autism when you don't know what that spectrum is going to be like when they're born. But that, uh, that assumes or presumes that uh, knowing... that uh, First, it presumes that you would have the ability to predict autism uh, in utero, which you cannot, because uh, now we are changing our thinking again, and we think that it's more of an interaction of environment and nature that actually shapes the autism as it is. You know, for example, if um, if I hadn't uh, fought as hard for my child as I had, uh, there probably wouldn't have been a honor student and uh, studying at the, one of the Russell universities. <laughs> but I had to fiercely, fiercely advocate for them all throughout the school up to the uh, GCSEs and A-levels. Um, so you really cannot predict what the person is gonna turn out like. So it, I don't think there will ever be the point at which you will be able to say, like with Down syndrome, which is a monochromosomal anomaly. So it's just one chromosome is affected and it's just one extra chromosome. With autism, there are so many different genes. There are thousands of genes and also the environment. It's just, I don't think anybody would ever vote and especially doctors uh, would ever vote for in utero diagnosis for autism. No, well, I, I... I hope so. And, and, you know, the autistic community are, are very much eyes on the subject and we're going to, you know, we're going to be there and, and make sure that whatever happens, um, the autistic community, um, you know, agree and are, are not worried about it. I mean, I'm sorry to send you off on another tangent, but it was because you'd... No, it's very exciting. And, and I'm very interested because you are a doctor and you have um, studied so much in this field. So um, you've mentioned that, um, you know, you have two teenage... Um, is it two teenage boys you have? Um, I have two teenage kids. One of my children just wants to be known as child okay child. yes and that's absolutely fine and how old is um are they uh one is 19 and yeah. uh, another one is uh, going on 13. oh okay and um because one of the questions i was saying to you is that you know you you all your family members are neurodivergent and and that does make for an interesting family dynamic i think um i think i'm, I'm in the same um boat as you in that respect and um are they are, are your family members um you know what what neurodivergences are they if you don't mind sharing you know oh, we all have the same thing we all have the same thing to various degrees you know it's ASD, ADHD, I mean, ASC, ADHD, so. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. And, and how have you managed that as a, as a mom? And do you find that your own um, differences and your own spectrum, as you said before, actually, you know, you have 
nurtured and worked really really hard to get them to through education um, and get the accommodations that they want but do you find it a struggle how, how, how do you cope with your mental health with having such an interesting family you know actually it wasn't bad uh, until I developed the struggles at work where incidentally is when uh, my autistic traits became so prominent that uh, they started interfering with uh, things, you know, where I couldn't, I couldn't uh, just stop myself from uh, telling people what I thought. And unfortunately, not everybody likes honesty. Uh, so it, you probably know that our autistic traits, uh, our ability to camouflage them becomes impaired uh as we become more stressed and uh, more unwell in any sense physically or mentally um so this is what happened to me until then i was sort of functioning uh okay and um, then my autism became more prominent uh the nhs declared that they don't need me <laughs> uh, they don't I, believe you did you say that the nhs didn't believe you uh, no, they said that um, if I need so many accommodations, uh, then I probably then modern NHS uh, cannot accommodate me. Oh, I I can't believe that. It's so terrible, isn't it? That the no, it is psychiatrist. It is it is also it was also said by a child psychiatrist who <laughs> deals with autism on a daily basis. And this, um, when I was diagnosed originally, it was by two psychologists who were neurotypical women, and they just said I had autistic traits, but I'd already done about eight months of extensive research on myself and, and what I, my identity and what I believed I was. And unfortunately, with my clients, I keep hearing it over and over again, that um, within psychiatry and, and, and the psychology field, unfortunately, especially for late diagnosed women, Think so much is missed. I mean, what do you think about that? I think it's a really complex issue because on the one hand, uh, I completely agree with you. I do agree that uh, a lot of women have been missed and not just women, men too. I mean, you know, at least, actually at least 70% of my clients are men, adult men who were not diagnosed in time. Yes. Um, but the women were missed and uh, still when we even when we come for assessment in adulthood it's like well yes you do have the traits but is it enough for diagnosis yes. uh, there is this uh some mental uh hurdle that the professionals just struggle to overcome to reconcile this notion that autism uh is a uh, this condition that can be diagnosed and uh, a female can live with autism until the age of 30, 40 without diagnosis. It just seems something that they really struggle with. And on the other hand, uh, there is, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, about 10 days, two weeks ago, there was uh, an article in uh, the Telegraph, I believe, uh, and Yuta Freeth uh, was interviewed uh, for that article that basically, say, uh, basically said that the Professor Freeth um, is saying the autism definition has really been 
stretched beyond recognition. And I think that's, that's, not, that's not exactly what's happening. I think what's happening is there are a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists who have a little bit of a whiplash uh, from the, no, the autism in females is not possible to every female that presents with query, uh, emotionally unstable personality, query autism must be autistic now. And uh, I think this is uh, quite complicating the issue. It is, uh, you know, the, the psychologist said that I had um, autistic traits, but they didn't give me um, a diagnosis of autism. And I personally don't think there's such a thing as autistic traits. I think you're either autistic or you're not. And, um, and I got a second opinion by somebody who was very highly reputed and they had no trouble in um, diagnosing me um, as autistic. But it, nevertheless, it's, it's, not, it's almost not the point in, in a way. If you are, um, however, you know, whether you're a man or woman, non-binary, trans, you know, whatever your gender and sexuality, if you feel and and you've researched and you've looked and you've you know you've been on anything from TikTok to LinkedIn to YouTube to Instagram and or books whatever you've done and you've come to the conclusion I have got so many traits that I diagnose with. I mean, as, as a psychotherapist, self-diagnosis is 100% valid. And when people come to see me, there's no way that I'm going to say, no, you're not. Um, and I had a client yesterday whose um, therapist was dismissing them, which is very wow. dangerous to do something like that, I think. Don't, don't you? It is. it is. It's terrible. But you know what? I actually uh, did uh, contact the Royal College of Psychiatrists. They contacted the champion, the autism champion, saying, we really need to change how we diagnose autism. And uh, what I proposed is that we train a group of uh, you know group of uh, volunteers perhaps autistic medics uh, better still autistic non-professionals we train them how to uh, diagnose autism and let them diagnose it and then com uh, just confirm it with a professional because i know the psychiatrists and psychologists will never let it out of their hands so just confirm it with the professionals yes no uh, they would be better than a bunch of junior doctors who've never met an autistic in their life, who've never seen ADHD. And uh, they sit there with all pomp and, uh, uh, you know, knowledge, so to speak. Uh, and they refuse the diagnosis because they just don't understand. But, you know, we have this, uh, one of my friends here in Oxford calls it uh, ADAR. <laughs> uh, when you're autistic, you kind of uh, experience autistic empathy with another autistic person. Uh, so you just need to train autistic people to go and do this very important job. And then you would clear all sorts of the waiting lists. Uh, you would give people diagnosis. You would uh, sift through the people who don't qualify for the diagnosis and who just want it for uh, secondary gain i never received the response I, I i can't agree with you more i really um i really do get that and uh when i look at um my 
you know, 56 years worth of experience as um, an undiagnosed and then diagnosed autist and ADHD. When I sit, um, I've niched now, so I call myself a psychotherapist and mentor for neurodivergent clients. And I say I'm autistic and ADHD. But when my clients come to see me, um, validating them and really listening and watching and seeing what they bring to the space that we're in. I can look at their body language. I can look at the different things that they describe, the challenges they've had from birth through school, in their family life, amongst their peers. And yes. I don't diagnose and I don't, uh, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. It's unethical for me to diagnose or assess, but I can observe. And it's only when the time is right that I would say to a client, have you considered that you might be neurodivergent? And, and sometimes they say, well, I thought it was anxiety, but I'm seeing more about it. I've, written, I've read an article. And then we can start the journey if that's what they want to do. Maybe they don't want to go for diagnosis, but I, I really agree with what you're saying. There should be more coaches, more mentors, more people who are neurodivergent, who are perfectly able to um, empathize and observe and I mean, that's what, that's what we're so good at. We can see patterns in behavior. We can exactly. look at body language, the eye contact and everything and make a really informed, um, you know, just an informed way of looking at them. I do agree with you. Um, so when you, um, I'm just looking at our questions because we're going all over the place and I absolutely <laughs> love it. No, I think it's really, really good. Um, yes, yeah, something that is specific, you know, we, we've spoken about sort of, you know, genes and about looking at um, therapy and psychiatry. But um, one of the fantastic guests that I've had on this podcast is um, Paul Isaacs, who's very much an ambassador and so important for the autistic community. He is great, isn't he? I have so much respect for him. He's so good. And, and he wrote a really good article about depression. And then um, I've just started seeing a client, of course, as I'm not doing anything uh, about confidentiality. But the person that I'm seeing is struggling so much because they went to, um, I think, um, incorrectly were, well, I don't know, they were put into a special needs school. But um, many of the people at the school had very, very much higher needs than the person did. And when oh, they yeah. came out, they felt infantilized and actually were not trained or given any support as far as social interaction was concerned. So I've been working um, with um, role play, you know, working yeah. with eye contact, open-ended questions, how to start off a conversation, just going really, really back to basics. But yeah. the problem, the big problem that this poor person has got is that it's, not having the accommodation, not really going in the right direction to find out about language and to find out about how to communicate. And that has led them to have awful problems with dissociation, stress yeah. and depression. And it's been so hard. And I know this is um, an area that you work in. I mean, I know that you're an expert translator between psych language, lived experience and plain English. And that seems to fit in exactly with this particular client. But just for clients who might be quite articulate and but find it 
well they're articulate in some ways but they just find it difficult to live in a neurotypical world please tell me what you've learned and what you can give to our community when you have autistic people who are they might have pathological demand avoidance they might have adhd they might have real big problems with emotional regulation but it comes down to language how can you help and what can you advise you know, you know this is just something that i actually cover in a, a second module of my course uh one of the many things um what i have uh learned uh, after two years of research and thinking and reading uh, and I have said it before uh, on Quora where I have my own space and uh, other online media what I have learned is that every person doesn't have just one age we need to think of every person as having five different ages it's the chronological age so this is how old I am. You know, you can be, say, as an autistic child, you can be 11 years old, for example. Then there is your biological age. This is how you develop biologically, you know, your, your biological maturity. Is your coordination developing uh, alone with your chronological age? Are your hormones developing alone? Are they going uh, ahead of it? Are you, de are you developing premature puberty or are you behind and you still uh, haven't entered puberty at the age of 17. Um, there are, uh, you know, the growth uh, part of it. The disease that is associated with old age, for example, Down syndrome that uh, we mentioned before, that is associated with uh, premature aging. So if we develop cataracts at the age of, you know, 60, 70, they develop cataracts at the age of 20, 30. Gosh. So this is your biological age. And it's not just cataracts, you know, they, the same age, they develop osteoarthritis and uh, they develop osteoporosis. So many, many signs of aging, they develop way too early. That is absolutely fascinating. And I've so this is, this is the second one. Then we have the uh, intellectual age where autistic people frequently are way ahead. So you can be 11 year old chronologically, but intellectually you, you may be, you know, 20. Yes. <laughs> and then there come two ones that we really fall behind. That's social and emotional. Yes. And, and this is where we are being let down. We are being assessed as, uh, as we are falling on that age spectrum. So if my child is uh, 11, but they're, emotional development maybe only at age of five they will be labeled slow or stupid and they will be put into a special needs school they may be they may be a genius they may be an ex einstein in the making but they will never get there because they will never get the nurturing that they need i really i really can see this and it, it is very very interesting what you say i mean just something um, I have, hang on, one, two, three, I've got five ages. This is, this is incredible. It's slightly different to what you're saying, but not necessarily. I, I have within me the ages of 8, 14, 24, 45, and the age I am now, 56. Right. It's incredibly significant. And I, 
I know I sort of jump between the two, the, those ages. There's also a part within psychotherapy, uh, a model of therapy called transactional analysis, which yes, is... Yes, I know, yeah, I know. You know, that. and it's parent, child, adult. And I absolutely yeah. jump between those. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other side where, um, you know, just when I think, you know, of some of the articles I've read, uh, Dr. Ian Hale, I think, is um, the, the person who I think is very, very interesting. He's also a very good thinker, isn't he? He's incredible. And, and, and the recent article I read um, from him, which I can accept this as an autistic person, and, and I'm perfectly practical and pragmatic about it, is the fact that I may not be um, long lived on this planet. And I don't actually have a problem with that because I don't want to be, um, you know, in a, in a bed in a hospital, um, 85 with, with multiple um, health issues. Um, you know, I, I've seen my, both my parents um, in hospital and it was pretty horrendous. But there's that thing about we age because of all the stress and everything else that we get yes. with us, the co-occurring physical illnesses like fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases. Um, yes. cancer because of the stress because our immune um, yes. you know, is and all this kind of stuff and I don't have a problem with that but one of the the things within this and I really I'm so fascinated about the different ages is like hormones um, estrogen is a real problem for women with um, ADHD and osteoporosis I mean I broke both my ankles last year and I know my bone density is not great and that's probably something to do with it but the one terrible thing I'm coming across, unfortunately, with quite a few of my clients is um, suicide. Um, yeah. I can think um, very practically speaking when I'm driving along and there's my favorite tree or there's my favorite cliff. If I'd had enough of life and I'll just, you know, off I go, yeah. sort of thing, you know, but, yeah. but, you know, I'm being flippant. But when I have clients coming to me and they really say, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And they think about suicide in intrusive thoughts and sometimes to the point of planning it. How do you feel about that in, your, in all of your experience within the mental health field? First of all, I think we, we cannot shy away from the conversation. Um, and I am, I'm a little tired of the you know, trigger warnings about suicide. And uh, I think it contributes to the stigma. And I don't think it uh, should be stigmatized. I think it must not be stigmatized because it is a completely normal human reaction to excess stress levels. Um, I was suicidal. Uh, and I obviously saw a lot of people in acute distress who were suicidal. And what I learned is uh, you need to find something. You need to talk to the person because talking helps. Even, you know, it, I knew that uh, I knew the mechanism of it and I know how it works. And still I went to my GP every week when I was very low and I talked about it and it helped. So you, you need to not shy away, but talk about it. You know, ask them what have they planned. Uh, how they thinking of doing it, what uh, the people that they know uh, would think about it uh, afterwards, how would they react, have they thought about the practicalities. And when, when you start talking uh, about it, you destigmatize it and uh, you make it less 
over saying that you will just need to jump uh, into without any thinking before everybody, anyone stops you. And that I, is one thing. I do, I do get that. And, um, and certainly it's, you know, it's my ability to gauge how the conversation goes in the therapy room sometimes i normalize it as you say i don't talk about it as though it's stigmatized and oh i can't go anywhere near that subject i actually normalize it i say well yeah. what method have you thought about when did you think about it you're still thinking about it and very often i yeah. say no it was something i thought about many years ago and you know and, and i can think about it when i'm feeling low but i haven't um taken action i do agree with what you're saying about not putting a trigger warning on but unfortunately we're not you know it is difficult when you're talking about things like podcasts because some people um who may listen to the podcast for instance who are not uh, autistic but may have mental health struggles could get um triggered and i just have to be a little bit careful but i i think we should be able to um definitely talk about death yeah um in all its forms and speak about it normally i don't have a problem talking about it um and i think we've got a way to go unfortunately but thank you so much for your and, and just just uh, to get back to the yes. uh suicide uh issue yes i think i think what uh is most helpful is to ask the person if they are acutely suicidal what stops them because you find you know, if they if they had wanted to do it there is still they would have done it there is still something that stops them so you need to tease it out from them and you know some one of my clients said that it was her little hamster oh for me it was my children you need to find that anchor and play it up uh, you know bring it into the consciousness of the person that you speak to and make them you realize even more that it really isn't going to be isn't going to solve the problems but it's going to bring in more problems into the lives of those that they still care about and that is uh, and, and that is right i mean sometimes people think it's the final solution the only solution the only thing that that they can do but um you know that there, there is something about um with men because men often are very sort of action orientated and if a man um you know there was a lot in the newspapers about um the the terrible um, rates of suicide within men, within men up to the age of 43 they take action if they're going to do it then they will do it whereas women on the other hand they may do it in a different way they may drink themselves to death or they may try and take pills it could be a cry for help but you're you're absolutely right and it is a question of listening and hearing and teasing it out in the space that you hold um, with that person exactly. um, and i and i i'm not scared of doing that i'm not scared of talking about it and um and i hope i can help and so um with yourself you know um thank you for being so candid and mentioning um that there had been times in your life where you felt suicidal are there any other times that you can think of you know um within your sort of timeline of age and and what you were doing in your life that you had particular mental health difficulties for instance it's the big four for me it would be stress anxiety depression and addiction did, did those ever 
come into your lives and can you tell us about uh, well yes <laughs> where to start <laughs> um yes i think you know i was fairly well sort of balanced uh, kid until uh, until i turned 14 and uh, this is when i started in medical school and uh, throughout the first year i was bullied mercilessly and it was all it wasn't you know like a proper bullying it was just making jokes oh you're still there oh uh, your pants uh, you know your trousers actually show that you have legs um, that it, it's not all fat it was I was a little chubby when I was uh, that age and uh, but it was all said with a joke and a smile and everybody laughed and I laughed alone and then I I just collapsed uh, emotionally uh, after a year of that. Uh, this is when my struggle with stress really started and with anxiety. And um, then I started uh, smoking just because I, I moved, I sort of moved uh, into a different seminar group. So I was with different people, but then I started smoking to, to sort of to fit in to please them. And uh, I started drinking, you know, that's 14 year old me. Yes. Uh, and then at the age of 16, actually on my birthday, sweet 16, I, I started restricting, so I developed anorexia. And uh, yes, I think it's an entirely different thing about anorexia because I think it's all been managed very poorly. Um, I got over it and uh, I think I would have still been anorexic if I managed, uh, if I were managed like people are being managed uh, here or anywhere really, because everywhere the the point of focus is on the weight, you know, the weight. Oh, yes, the it's not about the freaking weight. It's not about the bloody weight. No. It's about the control and our ability to focus on it. And yeah. our ability to take the control back. What needs to be done is the person needs to have more control in their life, not less. Yes. And they, their energy, that extreme focus, it needs to be re redirected into something more healthy. And on the um, on the autistic side, I've I've been reading a lot about autism in girls and the fact that seventy um, no what is it thirty percent of autistic girls are autistic thirty uh, percent of anorexic girls are autistic. I think it's more than that, to be honest. Is it? Uh, yes, and of course, all the people that slip through the net. And can you imagine? Um, so you have your parents, and you have um, an anorexic daughter and uh, you are just looking at the weight and they end up going into residential care or into a psych unit with all the strip lights, the sounds, the noises, and everyone's yeah. trying to stick tubes down your throat and making you eat. Yeah. I cannot imagine anything more traumatic. You're doing the absolute opposite of what you would need to do with somebody who is exactly. trying to find control in their lives, aren't you? Exactly, and you know what? I actually experienced it not so long ago in April. I was admitted in uh, in coma, to be honest, um, to uh, the local ICU unit, um, and uh, they took the history from my husband. My husband mentioned all my diagnoses in the history. He said she had anorexia, but you know it stopped before our son was born, 
she also diagnosed with autism and ADHD. And uh, that was, uh, you know, he didn't think about it anymore. Now, of course, because I have diabetes and they saw the word anorexia and they couldn't make heads or tails uh, of my condition. What apparently was decided, and I still haven't seen my medical records despite requesting them, but what apparently was decided is that I had uh, anorexia and I went into coma because of uh, not giving myself insulin. Um, and uh, I, I went through all this humiliation that you were just talking about, you know, they they put the nasogastral tube into me three times and oh. I kept pull, pulling it out. The nurse assaulted me. The nurse assaulted me because I was desperate not to have the uh, NG tube yeah. down my throat overnight feed. They were sticking their head into the toilet. They wouldn't let me go pee or poo privately because oh my God, what if she is vomiting in there? They were treating me like a full anorexic patient. They were weighing me daily. They never even told me that they were doing this. They, I only put the, connected the dots later on that this is what they must have been doing. This is why they were so insistent on putting the NG tube down. This is why they were so insistent on having somebody sit with me all night, make sure that I, I didn't uh, take it out. Despite me eating at that point, you know, despite me eating at that point normally, thank God my husband came uh, uh, and uh, I, it so happened that they didn't give me insulin on time. Uh, oh yes, and they removed my uh, pump. So they removed any sort of control that they had over my body. And uh, they removed my pump and they didn't give me uh, insulin on time. So my blood sugar went very high and it's not very well known, but when your blood sugar goes high, you become aggressive. So I became... Oh, I've heard that. I've seen that actually on a documentary. Yeah, I became very upset and I started uh, yelling and I wanted to leave. They threatened me with mental capacity act. And oh, even my God. husband, even my husband was unsure if I would be detainable or not. And I was, I was telling him, look, I'm not detainable because this is what, this is what, this is what. Just because you disagree with medical professionals doesn't mean that you, don't, that you lack capacity. It's but terrible. It, is, it must have been finally, they, they such they a terrible, you. terrible experience. It was horrible. You know, that's, there is a great, there is a great, um, article uh, by a psychologist in the 70s it's called by being uh, on being sane in insane places and it talks about how people are treated in mental world even though they were completely healthy completely uh, you know without any mental illness diagnosis they pretended to be ill they were admitted and from that point onwards everything that they did was somehow related to the so-called illness. For example, the researchers who were uh, making notes, uh, they would be uh, characterized as the patient is engaging in obsessive writing behavior. And, so, and uh, the thing is, is that you, you go in um, as autistic and you've, had, you've gone into coma because of um, diabetes, but lots of people who are going into psych wards, into the <clears throat> excuse me the different places that they're going into you might not have been mentally ill when you went in but for goodness sake you are when you come out 
Oh, you I, I totally would agree. PTSD, yeah. aren't you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I, uh, I think I have PTSD because every time I talk about it, I can't help getting flashbacks. I can't help getting emotionally upset about it. That's so terrible. And another another side of that, which is also very relevant into this, if you don't mind, because I could talk about what you've just said for another hour. And, and I, I think maybe I'll get you on again to specifically talk about eating disorders at another time, if that's OK. But something that one of the human given therapists specializes in and she worked on a psych ward is um, the terrible thing that they do when people self-harm um, and they're um, cutting and they know what they're doing they're in control they have their blades they have their swabs and their you know everything that they need to cut but when they go into the psych ward they're punished and everything's taken away from them so all of their control is taken away rather than being able to say to the person, you know, um, it, you know, you, you can do it in a controlled way and we'll keep an eye on you. And, and when you take control away from the person, it's everything. It's, it's hugely traumatic, isn't it? It is. It is absolutely terrible. And it's not, you know, it's not just about taking the control away. It feels dehumanizing. Yes completely dehumanizing it's it becomes not even about control it becomes about seeing you as a whole human being and talking about that and that huge pathology of what that is like um a lot of people and um i have my own views on it but i'm a psychotherapist i'm 100 percent with my clients whatever they want to do and i do believe that it's a multi-pronged um you know it is multi-pronged so you have your family and your friends your gp your psychologist your psychotherapist and you might have medication but i do have some of course i'm talking to you and your psychiatrist but i do have concerns about um medicating because i feel you know talking about being in the psych unit and the and, and the feeding and everything else i worry that people who are different who have got a neuro a different neurotype are being medicalized in order to fit in with the the normal society the neurotypical world instead of working with calming down the stress looking at the environment and helping them with their emotional needs and i just see a time when human beings that's what we are human beings are medicalized to calm us down to make us conform and i worry about that what do you think about medicalizing i suppose specifically adhd but but medicalizing autistic people with anxiety and depression medications that is very interesting what you say because i actually have uh, experienced that myself you know when i was kicking up the fuss um in the uh, in the local oxford Oxford University hospitals with um, my diabetes and uh, my uh, so-called anorexia they tried to they they were pushing diazepam down my throat yeah you know? and I just I got so angry I literally pushed it out of their hands and said no you're not gonna get me addicted to another drug yes this is just incredible another another example to you I had an incredibly supportive um, consultant in occupational health, Dr. Evie Kemp, who also works for the same hospital, actually. And uh, she 
she, she kept asking me uh, every every time I saw her, and I saw her monthly for you know for two or three years. Uh, do you think anything else would help you? I would say, yeah, you know, getting my job back and uh, having no problems. And she, each time she would say, yeah, I can see that, but I can't do that for you. Is there anything else that we could do? Yes. Uh, and, and that's it. That is it. It's you, because you see, you go to a GP and sometimes, and you don't know, perhaps you don't know you're autistic or neurodivergent and you go to a GP and they are going to write out a prescription or they're going to send you to some online messaging telephone type nhs cbt and it doesn't work it's yeah you know it's it is it's you know i like to think that for neurodivergent people you've got to feel safe in your body you have to feel safe in your environment and you need to feel safe with the people that are around you yeah. and that is what you were saying earlier it's it's talking together and listening isn't it and seeing how emotional needs can be met and what needs to happen to bring the stress levels down because people are living with such terrible stress and, and as i was saying before that can go into fibromyalgia me um yeah. migraines um uh, terrible back problems and then you're given loads of medication for that so often we're misdiagnosed we're mismedicated and people are going the wrong routes for what they really need absolutely can i just uh, say though you know in uh, there is a point and the temple grandin writes about it in uh, uh, in her book and then oliver sachs mentioned mentions it in his book about her uh, she reached a point in her adolescence at which she could no longer cope with anxiety and she found a tiny dose of medication very helpful and yeah. i think uh it it has to be the person's choice i mean mm -hmm. i do i do take medication myself for adhd and i find it helpful with my children uh my son was first prescribed when he was nine when he was diagnosed and uh, i i said to him you can take it or you can not take it here is the one tablet if we, if you feel you don't like it if you feel any side effects at all if you just don't want to take it it's your life i don't want to force it upon you and this is very important because you know that the majority of children with adhd who do get medication and they may improve their uh, performance at school and their behavior etc but do you know that the majority of them stop taking medications the moment they reach 16. no i because, didn't know that that's very interesting because it was forced down upon them uh, and they uh, just like with insulin for young diabetics it becomes a point of rebellion so i i gave my children total freedom i said look this is here this is for you 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 want it you need it you take it uh you don't want it and you know uh, my other child is not so keen uh so we take it when uh we need it when we need to focus for an extended period of time when we do when we need to do some school work or homework but otherwise uh it you know it doesn't it, it's not my body it's not my life i cannot force something upon uh, upon you you know and i think you should see it from the child's perspective and see my uh my child wanted it my older child wanted it because uh 
he's very academically oriented and he was frustrated because he was trying really really hard and you know this inconsistency in performance in yeah. ADHD and autism where one day you try really hard and you do extremely well another day you try just as hard but you do very poorly and uh, the teachers kept saying oh he's not trying consistently he's not trying hard enough and then we tried the medication and he loved how it made him able to do his best so he continued my other child is not that academic uh they're bright but they're not you know they have other interests in life and that is fine and uh, if they don't want the medication uh when it's not absolutely required it's fine but that is being taken away from children what the choice yeah the choice is being taken away from children this is what i'm against i'm not against the medication i am against the forcing the medication down upon children but equally i'm against the withdrawing the medication from children or withholding it when the child would benefit from it and uh, there is not even a trial of it. One thing with um, ADHD medication, which is good, it's the good thing about medication, which is different to medication that you would take for psychotic behavior, you know, through stress or depression and uh, sertraline and all these different medications. With ADHD me uh, medication, they're often um, very short-lived which is what you know so you can you can take them for certain things and then you'll go back to normal afterwards but yeah. I, I did read that sometimes medication you take it and it stops working and and there was a stigma or there was a thought that some medications could be um, addiction forming uh, what, what do you think about that any medication can uh, be addiction forming you know the opiate epidemic I was one of the doctors who was saying, oh no, if you have pain, you cannot be addicted. And I was prescribing, you know, codeine and uh, I was prescribing oromorph in the hospital freely because I really believed that. Ultimately, I think any medication can be addicting. If you think about the medication and uh, getting used to it, that is also true. For example, when lafaxin, many people who are on medication when lafaxin, which is very good for anxiety and depression uh, because it has dual action. Yes. But if, if you stop taking it suddenly, you, got, you get horrible headaches. Horrible headaches and it's like a jolt in the head. And I have taken it and I know it from personal experience. You, you feel, I don't know how you feel with opiate withdrawal, but uh, you feel really bad. <laughs> and I think it is so important for GPs and psychiatrists to be really managing it all the time, not just writing the prescription out, but getting people to come back. How are you feeling? What are the side effects? Is this working? What do you think? I'm just looking at time, and I wonder if you would be kind enough. I always ask my client, uh, my clients, my wonderful guests, this one question, which if you could sum it up in a couple of minutes, of course it's a gigantic question, and I'm asking you to do it in a couple of minutes, so sorry about that, Lilia. <laughs> the question is, um, how would you like to see positive change at home, at school, and in the workplace to help all neurodivergent people be included and valuable members of society? I think what we need to do is, number one, uh, we need to get rid of this uh, you know, alien thinking. Uh, I think it is hugely dehumanizing and I think it is really stigmatizing. 
Uh, I understand why Oliver Sacks did it a while ago. Uh, you know, that was about 40 years ago, 50, when he wrote his uh, The Anthropologist on Mars about Temple Grandin. But there is no reason to still have children books on sale that say the Martian on the playground is there. Because we're not bloody Martians. We are people. We are humans, just like anybody else on this planet. And thinking about me as an alien automatically makes me, uh, in your mind, automatically makes me somehow unintelligible, somehow impossible to understand. So I think this is the first step that needs to be taken. Second step that needs to be taken, we need to accept that uh, autism is a very diverse condition. And we need to give this, you know, to send this message to the neurotypical community. Uh, like many people said, like Oliver Sacks said, Jutta Fries said, it is so diverse that it's impossible to give once of uh, recipe for every possible situation, which I think is a lot of what current uh, autism training programs do. And current autism training programs, they are, they are put together, most of them, by the vast majority, put together by people who have no connection to autism, who know nothing about autism. Uh, so it's, it's just rubbish, uh, pardon my language. That's right. Uh, what, what we need is the go to the first principles. And this is what I'm trying to do with, with my uh, autism guidance, with my autism training course. Uh, where I separated sort of eight guiding principles and they all make a very nice uh, mnemonic autistic. So the first, each letter stands for a different quality. For example, A stands for anxiety because it's a huge thing. How many people know that we steam because we're anxious? How many people know that uh, we have meltdowns because various uh, in sensory inputs uh, drivers into the super anxious state. How people we know that the routines and rules and rituals, they're all sorts of ways of managing our anxiety, uncertainty, lack of control. Uh, how many neurotypicals know that? Not, not many. And uh, I think that, that yeah. is, I would love very, very much on that because I, I did read about that autistic and what it all stands for. And I think I'd love to ask you to send me the links for the different um, things that are important to you that you can, uh, that you think our listeners will really benefit from about that because you, you um, unfortunately we've come to the end of our podcast today, but you, you're absolutely right. So many things um, just on the A of autistic for anxiety. And I would love to know what the other letters stand for. So please, please do send that as a link. And um, Lilia, thank you so much. I've, I've, this has been an incredibly um, interesting and so comprehensive. And I've learned an awful lot from our time together today. And I would like to get you back on again when when I'm thinking about focusing on particular topics, if that's all right. Yes, sure. That will be really good. And so thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast today. And I'll continue to following, follow you on um, the platforms that I, I see you. Thank you very much, Sally. I had a really good time and uh, it was very nice talking to you. Thank you once again. Brilliant. Thanks, Lilia. Take care. Bye. Bye.
Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.